Would you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2? We'll be looking at verses 8 to 15 this morning. And while you're uh, finding that, uh, and, and again, if you don't have a Bible with you, there are some in the chairs here in the sanctuary this morning you could use, or in the balcony uh, as well. While you're looking at that passage, you want to uh, mention and say thank you to Carol Ann for leading us in worship this morning. As I said, Pastor Dan has been on sabbatical, and uh, it's been great to have Carol Ann and Wayne Welsh and Dave Tolberg each take their turn in leading us in worship during this time. And we have some wonderfully uh, gifted people in our congregation. It's great when they can uh, fill in when one of us are gone or need to step aside and take a, a break, if you will. And so we are glad for that and glad for this opportunity Dan's had to be recharged in his ministry, too. Well, listen to this passage of Scripture. This morning I want to read it for you, and then we'll dive into the text today. Paul writes, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer, without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Let's pray. Father, as we come to a passage like this, we need your wisdom. I pray, Father, that you would guard my words this morning and help me to get it right. And to speak those things clearly that are clear and where there are questions, to be honest about that and for us to humbly come before you. And I pray that you would give us all ears to hear what your word says and to put that into practice in our life in a way that honors you. For there is wisdom and there is truth here for the church today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I know that some of you last week were reading ahead and you looked at this passage and you wondered, what is Rick going to say this week on a text like this? Uh, this is one of the more difficult and sometimes controversial passages in Scripture. I thought about, as a joke, putting up the little plastic shield that the drummers use, you know, and having that up here today. It's a little humor. Yeah, and I, I also thought uh, this week, like I said, I was at a conference. I was gone for four days, and so um, I knew that I wasn't going to have a lot of time to prepare on this message. And so I had asked Ron, you know, if he wanted to take this week, and he ends up in China. And uh, he figured that was far enough away, and then Pastor Dan's on sabbatical. So uh, actually, that's why two weeks ago, Ron spoke when I was here. I used that week to prepare this message so that I could enjoy the conference that I was at and share these things with you today. This is a good text. It is a text that does talk about roles of men and women in the church. And some in our world today view that as sexist, that any talk about roles at all is wrong or should be set aside. But nothing could be further from the truth biblically. God has made us as male and female uniquely different, and those differences are by his design. And they are a wonderful thing that should be celebrated in our world 
not something seen as limiting and restrictive. It's also important to note that when we come to a passage like this, the historic interpretation of this passage has been the predominant view of the church for almost 2,000 years. In fact, it wasn't widely challenged until 1969. Today, virtually no liberal, theologically uh, liberal church or denomination holds to the traditional view. And many evangelical churches are wrestling with what it means also. Now, I want you to think about that, though. Harold O.J. Brown, who taught at Trinity at our seminary, made this comment. He said, When opinions and convictions suddenly undergo dramatic alteration, although nothing new has been discovered, and the only thing that has dramatically changed is the spirit of the age, it is difficult to avoid the conclusion that that spirit has had an important role to play in the shift. Kent Hughes writes, If we do not invite the biblical text to define church order, the intrusive culture will. If we don't allow the text to speak to us and guide what we do in the church, and we just simply follow the pattern of the world around us, then everything's up for grabs. Today we're going to walk very carefully through the church, I mean through the text as we talk about how this applies to the church. And I want you to hang in there with me. This is a, a pretty deep stuff we're going to talk about. And in terms of teaching, I'm going to be going through a lot of different details as we move along that I think are very important here. And so again, I want you to hang in there as we take a look at what the scripture has to say. Our goal here is to hear what God's Word is for us today. That's why this book was given, this letter was written, in order that we might know how we are to conduct ourselves in the church of the living God. And that's why we do these kind of in-depth studies. Well, what we find in this text is that Paul tells us that prayer is a primary ministry of the church, and it is the responsibility of both men and women to pray. We see that in verses 8 to 10. Paul has been talking about prayer in this passage. In fact, he's talking, the context is the worship or the public gathering of believers who come together. And he said, I want you to be a people who pray. And who pray for one another and who pray for our world and pray for the lost. And we lift up those needs before him. If you were to look at the lives of people whom God has used significantly in the history of the church, you would find that prayer is a common link. I could share many examples. Here are a few. Why was Charles Spurgeon so effective in his ministry? He was called the Prince of Preachers, a great preacher in England. And one of the reasons was that every time he spoke... There was a room full of men and women who were gathered in another place in the church that were praying for him. He never preached without others praying and interceding on his behalf. And there wasn't a week that went by in his ministry that someone was not converted to the Lord. There was power in prayer. John Wesley made it his practice to fast and pray two days a week. Every Wednesday, every Friday, he would fast and pray. And he said, God does nothing but an answer to prayer. And God used him powerfully. 
Hudson Taylor labored to bring the gospel to China. And his son said of him that for 40 years the sun never rose on China that God didn't find him on his knees. He was a man of prayer. I didn't put this one up there, but I think of Billy Graham too in our own generation. If you've ever been a part of a Billy Graham crusade, you have heard him say that the three keys to the effectiveness of any crusade are prayer, prayer, and more prayer. It's God's work, and it must be done God's way. And so Paul writes here and tells us that prayer is to be a priority in the church, and it is not just for women. God wants men to pray. That's a healthy rebuke for some of us, isn't it? Too often it is the women in the church who carry the load of prayer in prayer meetings, in prayer chains, and communicating those requests. And God says, I want men to lift up holy hands in prayer. I have always been encouraged in our church by the men who have committed themselves to pray. From the very beginning of our ministry, we've had a Saturday morning men's prayer breakfast where the men have gathered twice a month and they meet and they pray. And I appreciate that so much because I know those guys are praying for what happens here on Sunday. The last ten years, I've been part of a Thursday morning men's group that meets every week to pray, and they pray for me every Thursday because that's the day that I'm writing the message for Sunday. And they pray for me, and they pray for God's wisdom, and they pray for our services, and we pray for one another and our needs. When Paul says here, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer, the lifting up of holy hands was a customary way for Jewish men to pray. Paul's concern here is with how we pray. And so the lifting up of holy hands was common for them to pray like that, just like we would say, I want you to bow your head and fold your hands in prayer. Or I want you to get on your knees in prayer. The meaning behind the lifting up of holy hands was that our hands were to be clean before the Lord. No bloodshed on them. No guilt. No sin in our life. So our hands, when we lift them up before God, are to be clean. We've confessed our sin and we're coming before Him honestly and openly about what's going on in our heart and our life. It symbolized having a clean heart. And that's why Paul also adds without anger or without disputing. You see, it's hard to pray if there's sin in our life when we come before God. Nothing takes the power out of prayer like sin does in our relationship with God. Because if we've done something that we are guilty of and we know that, often the last place we want to go is to prayer because we know that God knows it all. It's kind of like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when they hid themselves when they heard the Lord walking in the garden. They were ashamed. God wants us to come before Him with a clean heart, confessing our sin. And there is power in our prayer when that connection is made. It's hard to pray if there's anger in our heart or if we're not getting along with our brother or sister, our spouse, our husband and wife, our children, leaders in the church, people that we work with. If there's conflict... It's hard to come before God in prayer. And actually, though, prayer is the best thing we can do because 
you're aware of that when you come to pray and you realize there are things that we need to take care of or we really can't pray together, can we? And so we need to be open and honest and forgive one another and deal with those issues in our life. You see, the emphasis here is not on the posture of prayer. The Bible talks about other ways that we can pray, kneeling, sitting, standing, lying on the ground, prostrate before the Lord. But the emphasis here is on the heart. And Paul is saying that when we pray, our heart needs to be right with God and with one another, or our prayers will be ineffective. And then verse 9 continues this idea of prayer, actually. Verse 9 begins, Likewise, or in the same way, I also want women to pray, but he also goes into how they are to pray and even what they are to wear. The idea of prayer here is implicit. And what is explicit in this text is that he wants women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety. Those words are all saying the same thing. I want women to dress modestly. The word for dress there, interestingly, is the word in Greek, cosmio. We get our English word cosmetic from it. It means to order or adorn. Sometimes the universe is called the cosmos because it has order and design. And so he's saying, I want women to dress or adorn themselves modestly. To dress with decency, not pushing the limits of how much can I get away with, but instead being considerate about how they dress. With propriety, that means with good judgment. It's being careful about who you follow as your role model or example. Because in our world, in the latest fashions, it seems that they are always pushing the bounds of what they can get away with in terms of the length of a skirt or how much they can show on top. They push the limits, but that's not to be the model and example for women who love God. He tells us that women are to dress modestly, with good judgment or good taste. This is an area where I really think that older women can help younger women. Moms helping their daughters to understand what this means and why this is important and why it is especially important in the church. You see, there are a couple things that you should note here, that the context of this passage is prayer and worship in the church. This passage isn't saying that a woman can't wear attractive clothing. It isn't saying that a woman can't wear a swimsuit at the beach or exercise clothes at the gym. But it is saying that you need to think carefully about what you do wear and where you are and dress appropriately. Remember, how a woman or how a teenage girl dresses says something about how she views herself. In the city of Ephesus, there was a temple there to the goddess Artemis. And people came from all over the Mediterranean world to worship this goddess Artemis. And temple prostitutes were common there. One of the things that they did that was a fashion thing that the temple prostitutes also did in that area was how they took care of their hair. They braided it in elaborate designs with gold and pearls. They wore expensive clothes to be attractive to men. That was their intent. 
And basically what Paul was saying is, remember where you are. Don't dress like a prostitute here. We have come to worship God. We've come to his house. And he is saying that when you come to pray, remember that God's primary concern is your heart. And let your faith show, not in terms of external things, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. What's most important to God is not your external beauty. It is your heart. And the Bible isn't saying here that a woman should never braid her hair or wear gold or pearls. Some have gone to that extreme and said that a woman should never wear makeup or anything like that uh, in the church and prohibited all of these things. But you can find in Scripture other examples. For example, in Revelation 21.2, the Scripture there uses in a positive way the picture of a bride beautifully adorned for her husband as a description of the church that God is going to prepare coming down from heaven, the new Jerusalem. You see, there are times when it is appropriate and right, like a bride who dresses for her wedding, to be beautifully adorned for her husband. And that is good and affirmed by Scripture. The setting, the context, is what makes the difference. And I think, again, this would be an excellent discussion for parents to have with their daughters about what is good and appropriate to wear or not wear. Modesty is appropriate for women at all times, just like holiness is appropriate for men at all times. And Paul especially wants us to consider that when we come before God in worship and prayer. Well, going on in this text, Paul makes another statement about how the church is to be conducted or how we are to conduct ourselves. He tells us in this passage that the primary role of teaching and leading the church is restricted to men. We see that in verses 11 to 15. In essence, what Paul is saying here is that I do not permit a woman to assume the office of an elder in the church. I'm telling you the conclusion up front. How do we get to that point, and why does Paul say that? That's what I want to walk through. Well, first of all, the Scripture says here that women should learn in quietness and full submission in verse 11. He said, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. Some have taken that passage again and applied it very strictly in the church and said that a woman must be silent. She must never speak or say a word in the church. Can you imagine that on a Sunday morning if we had that restriction? You could come, but you can't say a word. Well, that's not what Paul was talking about here. And a better translation would be, again, she should learn in quietness because the word that is translated here as silent is also found in verse 2 when it says that God wants us to live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. You could translate that as peaceful and silent lives. But most don't think that God wants us to go around in our world being silent all the time. Quiet is better, and it reflects something about the attitude of the heart. It's saying here that women should learn with a teachable heart. 
or a quiet and gentle spirit, not absolute silence. In verse 12, quietness or silence is the opposite of having authority over men. In other words, it's an attitude of respect or submission. A woman is to have respect for the leadership of the men God has placed in charge of the church. Now that's not just for women to have that attitude. That is for men also to have an attitude of respect for the leadership of the church. For example, Hebrews 13:17 says this that we are to obey it says obey your leaders and submit to their authority for they keep watch over you as men who must give an account obey them so that their work will be a joy and not a burden for that would be of no advantage to you In God's design for the church he has called some to be leaders and to have that responsibility and serve in the office of an elder in the church. And he asked the congregation, the people who are part of that church, to honor and respect them, and even uses the word to obey them so that their work will be a joy and not a burden. Now apparently something was going on in Ephesus where that was being challenged. And there were... Women in the congregation, apparently, or in the church who were bringing in their spirit of the world and not wanting to listen or follow what was being said. When Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach, it is clear from the Scripture that he doesn't mean all teaching. For example, in Titus 2, verses 3 to 5, he says that older women should teach younger women. We have done that in our church. I think the Apples of Gold ministry has been a wonderful thing where older women have met with younger women to share from the Scripture and share actually practical life skills. It's an opportunity for that kind of intergenerational fellowship where you can learn from one another, and that has been very healthy and good. That's what Paul's talking about. That's appropriate for women to teach other women. We also see women teaching children in the Scripture. In 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, Timothy talks about how he learned the faith from his mother and his grandmother. And how many of us learned about Jesus or learned the stories of the Bible from Sunday school teachers who were women? Probably all of us, if we've grown up in the church, have benefited from their teaching in our life. In Acts 18, 26, Paul tells us, uh, that Apollos was instructed in the faith by Priscilla and Aquila in their home. They heard Apollos preach. He was an excellent preacher and communicator, but there was part of his theology where he didn't have the full story. And they invited Apollos to their home, and Priscilla and Aquila, this husband and wife, taught him the way of God more accurately. It was appropriate to do that. And her name, surprisingly, is actually put first in this list of the couple. She must have been a very good teacher. And so when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach, it's clear from the Scripture that that doesn't mean all teaching is ruled out. So what kind of teaching is he talking about? Well, it's the next phrase that gives us a clue to that. He said, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. I do not permit a woman to exercise authority over a man. What is this authority that he's talking about? 
This is why it is good to study passages of Scripture in context. It's why I preach through books at a time consecutively because I want you to see the flow of the passage. That's the way we're supposed to read it and understand it. If you read this book carefully, what is the next subject that Paul is talking about when he moves into chapter 3? He's talking about elders, and then he'll go on to talk about deacons. What are the two primary responsibilities of elders in the church? One, they need to be able to teach. And two, they exercise authority over the church. That's why I've come to the conclusion, and many others, that what Paul is saying here is that I do not permit a woman to be an elder in the church. That that is a role that he has reserved for men, for godly men, to be leaders in that setting. Because those are the two responsibilities that they are to carry out. 1 Timothy 5.17 says that the elders who direct the affairs of the church, there is that ruling part or oversight, those who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of a double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. There are the two responsibilities of elders, to direct the affairs of the church and to lead in preaching and teaching. It is a sobering responsibility. Now, why does the Scripture give this command? Why does God say that? Well, some have argued that it is purely cultural and that it does not apply today. That's how many denominations, you know, that have gone in a more liberal direction have moved away from this and they've said it's just cultural. It doesn't have anything to do with us. It's because women at that time were not as well educated and so, of course, they should not have taught at that point. I want you to see, though, how freeing the Scripture actually was on this point. In the time of Christ, the time that Paul wrote, there were Jewish rabbis who said it would be better to burn the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament that the Jewish faith is built on. It would be better to burn the Torah than to teach it to a woman. Women were not permitted to read Scripture. So what Jesus did when he included women in his circle that he taught was remarkable. Women could not be witnesses in a court of law. So it is remarkable that the scripture tells us that the first people who saw Jesus after the resurrection were women. They testified to the fact of the resurrection. They are given an honored place in many different areas in the Scripture. But Jesus never appointed a woman to be an apostle. And Paul never appointed a woman to be the head of the church. This command is not given because men are more talented or intelligent or gifted. If someone tries to defend this text going down that road, it's a dead end. There are plenty of women who are more intelligent, even more discerning or gifted in areas than men. And we know it. You know, it's not an issue of intelligence or gifted. There are even women who have been given a pastoral gift, if you will. They have that heart of a shepherd, and there are roles and places where they can use those gifts in the church. The reason for this command 
is simply that it is God's design. Paul makes his appeal based upon creation, for Adam was formed first, and then Eve. In the Garden of Eden, in that perfect environment when man was created and Eve was created, there was still to be role, or there were still to be roles, and there was still to be headship and submission, even in that relationship as they were created in the garden. When Eve sinned, and it talks about that here, and when it says that Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner, Eve acted independently from her husband, and she was deceived by Satan, and she sinned. But Adam is the one who is charged with the greater responsibility as the head, not only of his wife, but the head of the human race, and who flat out disobeyed God when he ate the tree and he sinned. We see within the Trinity itself an example of how uh, there can be different roles and yet equality. And I think that's the big rub in our world that people sometimes don't like the idea of roles because they think how can there be equality if there are differences. And yet look to the Trinity and what you see there is a father who loves his son and a son who is obedient to his father in everything. You see a father who disciplines his son and a son who willingly submits to what the father asks. Yet they are perfectly equal. You see the Holy Spirit who is called the third person of the Trinity not begrudging that role as the third person but perfectly equal with the Father and the Son and functioning in His role as the one who empowers believers, who brings conviction to our heart, who guides us into the truth. In the Trinity, you have all the relationships that model what we are to see in parenting, in marriage, and in the church, yet with perfect equality. And so it is to be in the church and in the home. God has designed us and made us with unique differences. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Wives are to be submissive to their husbands as the church is to be submissive to Christ. Within the context of the church, He has placed the leadership and responsibility for the church in the oversight of elders. Yet women are free to do uh, just about uh, everything in the church except that particular role. And it is by the design of God. When I study this passage, actually the toughest verse for me is verse 15. When it says that women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now this is a passage that uh, you, just about every commentator you read has a different answer. And any time you come to that in a passage, you know that nobody really knows. <laughs> I'll give you what some of the options are and I'll tell you what I think. Uh, but this is a passage where I think, well, one day, ask Paul, exactly what did you mean here? Uh, even Peter in 2 Peter 3.16 affirmed Paul's writing as Scripture but he said that in it there are some things that are hard to understand. This would be one of those texts. When it says that women will be saved through childbearing, some have thought, well, does that mean that a woman will be saved in the actual act of childbearing? 
and preserved if she's a believer? No, because there are many godly women who have died giving birth to a child. Does it mean or is it a reference to the birth of Christ? Because in the Greek there's a definite article before childbearing and I think that is one of the possibilities. That, a woman, that women will be saved through the childbirth, meaning a reference to the birth of Christ. The reason I think that's a possibility here is that if you look at this passage as a whole, he's talked about Adam was formed first, that's Genesis 1. Eve was deceived and sinned, and Adam sinned, that's Genesis 3. And in the context of Genesis 3 comes the promise of the seed, the child that would be born. And it may be saying here that if she has faith in that child, she will be saved. But I think another possibility that fits the context is this. That it is using childbearing as a symbol of the unique privilege that has been given to women. Something that they do that men cannot do. And that is to give life or give birth to a child. And what he may be saying here is that women will be saved through childbearing, through contentment in the role that they have been given by God, not as a work, but if they continue in faith and love and holiness. This passage is not teaching a salvation by any kind of a work or effort or doing this or that. We are saved by faith. But he is saying that if women continue in faith and love and holiness with propriety, content and fulfilled in their God-given role, they will be saved. It's an interesting passage, and I think either of those are possible. The reason I think about that third one is that when I was preparing the Christmas messages this year, I was struck by a comment by Augustine who made this statement about the birth of Christ. He said that Christ was born as a man and he was born of a woman and both sexes have been honored in the birth of Jesus Christ. So what does this mean for us in our church? Well, one, it is a recognition that God has made men and women uniquely different yet both are equal before God and we see that affirmed in the scripture. We have equal standing at the cross before Jesus Christ, and there is no difference there at all. But two, it is a recognition that these differences that God has given to us are not meant to be limitations, but to bring order to the church and to the home. They are for our good in the family and in the church. And what it means in our church is that women can teach in many different roles. We believe that women can teach an adult class or chair a ministry with men or speak and pray in church or lead in worship, even as Carol Ann did today. They do that under the oversight of the elders in the church who are responsible and who direct the affairs of the church. And so there is a delegated authority that allows women to function in each of these different roles. The only thing they can't do in our church is be an elder. And we believe that that is God's design for the church based upon the Scripture. And then above all, God wants us as men and women to be a people who pray, 
who lift up holy hands in prayer, who are modest in our dress, who come before Him with a humble and a clean heart. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. There are times when we come to passages that challenge our thinking and especially challenge our world. And I pray that we would learn in our life to give You priority and to take very seriously what you have said and what it means. And I pray that you would help us to put these things into practice in our lives so we might live in a way that honors you and lifts up your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.